Well, firstly, I think it got a it got a lot worse sort of from the Industrial Revolution onwards because it, then clock time became something that we could use or try to use to achieve this goal, right? It's like, well, okay, now we're thinking about time as a resource. You get a certain number of hours each day. It feels like it's on you to try to squeeze even more into those hours. And then I think, you know, digital communication and all sorts of things just in the last few decades have, have made it even more extreme. There's this notion that you have to find a way to do an impossible amount just in order to sort of keep your head above water or, um, you know, be minimally acceptable as a human being or something. Well, that's a disaster. If you're setting it up for yourself, that you've got that the minimum you've got to do is an impossible amount, then like only disaster can follow from that. Uh... Hello and welcome. And just in case at the intro, you hear this beautiful little soothing noise that wants to make you put to sleep. Sarah is here with her little baby boy, Ralph, and he's snoring. And every time <laughs> I hear it, I feel like I fall deeper into the chair and I feel like I'd love a nap. I didn't know a four week old could snore. <laughs> you were telling something interesting that a newborn baby cannot breathe out its mouth unless it's like trying Screaming. to yeah, yeah 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 it can only breathe through its nose which shows that evolutionarily we are only supposed to breathe through our noses all the time yeah if you'd like Truly. to learn more and in case anyone's wondering uh, like uh, if you've listened to lots of our episodes of podcasts i taped my mouth for years like a kind of you know uh, a hostage yeah like a hostage <laughs> like a hostage <laughs> or whatever and just in case you're wondering latest development plot twist i've now gone i'd say a month without taping my mouth wow. really yeah yeah I've, I've, I've trained myself to sleep on my side and i don't need to tape my mouth more and i can breathe you trained yourself real. to sleep i think on i did side. Yeah. yeah i did yeah. yeah i don't need so, so like i'm kind of delighted with that i'm I, currently trying to sleep with my wrist on the bottom of my to hold closed. <laughs> oh my god, you're such That's a brute. Amazing. I've got two spares of tape. I'll give you two spares. I don't want your tape. I got a hand. Okay. But you know how I sleep these days? I sleep on my back with a baby right smack down the middle. Sometimes he's across my belly. Sometimes he's just laying around my neck. You know that won't change. Ned is six <laughs> he and he comes in most nights and he kicks me in the head. So like literally like it will not change and for years. It. Justina goes and sleeps oh, Ned's bed. in Ned's bed. I did. I slept in Ned's bed the last yeah. three nights. Ned is six, by the way. And interesting note, if anyone is actually interested, but my baby Ralph was born on the same day as Ned. Oh! oh, quick one. Do you reckon we've kind of broken a record? No, it wouldn't be a record, but would Ralph technically be the youngest person to ever be on a podcast? <laughs> Could be four yeah. weeks I mean, old. Four weeks old. And he's kind of snoring and it sounds like a subtle sneaky fart. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky, he might actually fart now as well. He's a oh great Oh my farter. God, we'll be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I love his farts. I mean, is that, is that real well, love? Is I that think unconditional that's, love? That's, that's, that's a true love. That is true love. I know, I picked his first snot the other day and I was like, this is fun. I'm like, I can't believe I'm enjoying someone else's bodily fluids this much. Wow. <laughs> but I hear it like because his nose is so blocked that's why he's snoring the uh, you now can get this thing that like um, like a little syringe that you yeah just, yeah that yeah. sucks it out but the old way is to actually just suck the snot yeah. out yeah, of yeah we nose. used to I remember having to suck the snot out of my daughters when they were little like yeah. literally and you're kind of going oh my god this is unconditional love right here in action but this is it if you tell me this pre-Ralph I'd be like gross now with Ralph I'd definitely suck the snot out of his you, nose yeah. yeah I wouldn't even think about it it's yeah, funny yeah, course, I suppose you just feel that and this is the same as you. Oh, look, there's his little hand. And oh, there he is. Good man, Ralphie. But um, this, uh, by the way, this episode comes out. Oh, hello, Ralph. You want to say something? Um, on the 26th of October, which is a few days before Halloween. Oh, Yay! yes. 
the excitement in my house already. It's right now the 17th of October and my house already and for the last week has been exploding. What, and Tia was stressed it all week. What am I dressing up? Like, I got to get the best outfit and Ned was like, oh, we tried on, even I dressed up as Spider-Man on Saturday. So we're like, <laughs> we're all like really getting into it. What's your best Halloween outfit? Uh, I enjoyed being Peter Pan. That's cute. I really that enjoyed that. Sense. And it was a homemade oh, one. Right, and I, I dressed ever. up as a milk bottle <laughs> once. We had this stool that could fit over my full body and I dressed up as a milk bottle and I thought that was bizarre. That's great. And I quite liked it. When and I this is like the old glass milk bottle. Not a Tetra pack, but this is showing my age here. I dressed up, I got my sister's uh, kilt her uniform when I was like seven. I dreamt up, uh, dressed up as a drunk man <laughs> and I put, a, I put a pillow up my, my jumper and I got an empty bottle of Heineken. My mum's like, what are you? And she's like, I'm drunk. I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I was like seven. A kilt and a drunk I was like, oh man. my God. Wow. <laughs> I was trying to have a good argument with Theo. He wanted a buyer's costume. I was like, come on, creative. Don't buy some pre-made thing. Make it yourself. Mm. And Lucy was helping me with a good argument, but uh, Justina bought him a costume, so. There we oh, are. Well, I've noticed. I've noticed a trend that uh, the last number of years, my daughters have dressed up as it's always a zombie, like a zombie high school girl. You know, they'll and they'll have makeup and paint uh, and vampire wear vampire high school. You know, or whatever they are. You well, know, it's like be. not that you guys uh, ever watched. Um, Buffy. What's it called? Uh, yeah. Mean Girls. But it's like, it's just, oh, oh hello, Ralph. That was sweet. It's just an excuse for uh, uh, people to dress up real sexy. Oh, wow, cool. <laughs> it's like, like they sexify every type of um, costume, like a sexy witch, a sexy zombie. Not that your girls are doing that yet. No, they were only 12. at 12. Yeah, 12. And <laughs> but beware. Um, there's a, there's a, in case you're wondering, Halloween actually originated from Ireland. It's part of Irish culture. Halloween did. All Hallows Eve, yeah. Yes, and I, I couldn't tell you the history of My daughter was telling me the other day on the way to school. But uh, yeah, which is surprising because most people think of Halloween and they go, oh, trick or treat, it's definitely American or whatnot. But it's ethnicity and its roots typically come And it from used Ireland. to be in Ireland, it wasn't carving a pumpkin, it was carving a turnip. Oh. <laughs> and that's like a Swede turnip. So these rock hard things. It's what would you need a good knife. Yeah, you really do. And they put a candle in it. God, that just like I mean that's that's Ireland in a nutshell, a kind of depressing version yeah. of <laughs> that something more colourful. Like on a bog fire or whatever. What do you think I should dress up Ralph just for my last Last, uh, I think in a question. Santa like you get those little mini Santa suits Santa who? oh that'd be quite cute okay, <laughs> like. I think anything will work like he's just so little what about a little sprout oh sprout yes oh wow he looks so cute he really, yeah. really does he's delicious if you uh, want to see what he looks like look at YouTube um, and you'll see our podcast oh you'll see YouTube. our podcast yeah, and you'll see actually you Sarah here actually live with, uh, with We Ralph yeah, oh, cool. yeah. But anyway, this, um, um, the, yeah, the, this week, this week's episode, uh, as you may have noticed on the title, Oliver Berkman, author of the four thousand uh, best-selling weeks, author, best-selling author, and really incredible. Like it's like modern day philosophy with a realistic twist. We were discussing it there earlier and saying that it really is like he he almost like channels in terms of his writing and his speaking of this wise father like headmaster headmistress type figure. Like it's that really kind of like sobering. There's this cold like a slap of reality and it's sobering and it's like it's not this hippy dippy positive like you can be at all it's like no make the choice yeah you you, you are limited <laughs> and and there's something very liberate that sounds kind of stern and bold and like you're kind of going oh, oh I don't want that but there's something very freeing in his words like it really is it's about accept, accepting that we can't do everything accepting that we can't be, be anything and even his book like 4,000 weeks for mortals and it's like time management for mere mortals like it really is in a sense and there's something very human and very kind of deeply practical and pragmatic. And, and although we're saying he comes off as this paternal-like figure, what he's writing about is extremely feminine. It's it's about accepting. It's about this 
gentle. It's encouraging more patience. It's like, it's wonderful. I loved it. It was a wonderful conversation where philosophy met ex, uh, existentialism meets practicality all wrapped up in time. It was very like, it's like negative positive. Yeah. It's like there's just not enough time to do it all, so just get over it yeah. and have Except a happy life. Have a cup of coffee and sit and just enjoy the birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, really simple and things. And this was, was our first yeah, live podcast we've ever done, and digitally by that. Yeah, it was done on our app, so it was great. It was the first live one where people joined from our app. Lots of members joined. And you get and to was, ask questions. Yeah, and there was questions coming in from the audience. So it was great. It was really, really good. So if you're interested in, we have our app, which is wonderful, where you get access to all our courses and a wonderful community, and it's all about supporting you. You know what to do to be healthy. But it's really about supporting you and holding your hand in being healthier. But on this app, we do our podcast live there. You can ask questions, but we also have other lives, which include you. Yeah, guys. with experts like gastroenterologists yeah. or it could be one about cooking that we could do or it could be one about movement and breath work. So it's all about supporting your kind of healthier and happier lifestyle. And pretty much every day there's a live. So anyway, without further ado, we give you our first live podcast with the wonderful Oliver Berkman. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it. Okay, our guest today is, as Oliver himself says, he's a recovering time management junkie. So there we go. Uh, who went way down the rabbit hole in this stuff for many years and has emerged with a really interesting thesis. Genuinely, I think it's incredible. You know, stop trying to get it all done. It's never going to happen. There's no such thing, he says, as work-life balance. We're going to get into that. There's no time management nirvana. That one's going to be a tough pill to swallow for many people, including myself. Um, the answer to is accept that we are all going to die, that we have limited time, and so we need to stop scrambling to fit it all in. Oliver Berkman, author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. That's his latest book. His previous book, which I think was a wonderful title again, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. He also writes a bi-weekly newsletter called The Imperfectionist. Welcome, Oliver. And also, how we, how we came to know about you, we were on a train ride coming back from... Somewhere outside of London, into London, with Amy, our publisher with Penguin Life, and we were talking about Amy. Who do you reckon we should get in the podcast? And she was saying, "There's this wonderful guy called Oliver Berkman. I was just reading his book, and I absolutely adored it." So there you are. Big shout out to Amy. Very glad to hear it. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be yeah. here. Oh, well, yeah. brilliant! Yeah. So, so I guess, I guess, first place to start, I think, is like even if you can give us a tiny context, because everyone wants to know your journey into this before we dive into the deeper philosophical aspects of our relationship with time like even if you can give us just a quick summary on your journey into it because I think that's so relevant and it gives a context for anyone listening totally I mean there's multiple levels of kind of uh, deeply intimate therapy we could get involved in here maybe we will but I'll give you the I'll give you the quick sort of middle middle depth version maybe I, I for many many years I was I would have classified myself as someone who was trying to get in control of my time uh, you know feeling overwhelmed by all the stuff that people ordinarily feel overwhelmed with working as a journalist on a daily newspaper, maybe a specifically quite kind of high pressure environment, deadline driven, lots of incoming stuff to handle, um, lots of lots of work to try to produce. And, you know, for for years, I wrote this column for The Guardian. One of the things I did there was to test out all these different methods and systems for organizing your life, uh, for optimizing everything. And it was weird in the sense it was kind of not necessarily very healthy to have a column where you got to kind of indulge this addiction. It's, uh, you know, it was slightly, I was slightly enabled by that, uh, by that situation, I think. But anyway, I spent years sort of thinking that I was just on the verge of finally feeling like I was in control of my time or that I was, you know, 
pleasing everybody who needed to be pleased and not letting anyone down and, and, and maximizing my potential and all these other values that are sort of imposed upon us by the culture. And this book is really the story of where I ended up when I finally, when it finally dawned on me that like, maybe that day wasn't coming. Maybe I wasn't going to find the, the combination of systems or the perfect, like, leather bound notebook or the sort of the, the specific guru who was going to suddenly cause me to not feel this anxiety and overwhelm. And I think the book is a story about how actually realizing that was the prelude to a much less anxious and much less overwhelmed relationship with time. It's a bit paradoxical. You have to sort of admit defeat in order to uh, start on the process of building a, a more meaningful life. Does that make sense yeah no i think that's beautiful and i think that's like there's so much of this space is paradoxical and so much of life i'm learning as i become older like i, I shouldn't say older but becoming 42 and more experience with life the paradox of life like you know typically creativity needs a boundary you think it requires freedom typically you know to feel more free typically you need a bit of structure a boundary around it because if it's limitless it's immeasurable and similarly the illusion of control we think that to be structured more productive we need to be highly rigorous and highly controlled whereas the irony is part of the key to being more productive in a presence and feeling of satisfiedness is surrender is what we need absolutely and i think you know it, it is kind of a bit mysterious and it gets a bit mystical but i think there's a very simple way of putting it as well which is you know, let's just look at the issue of being overwhelmed by a long to-do list. There are other ways in which we struggle with time, but let's just look at that obvious one or, a, you know, an, an overflowing inbox, just that quantity feeling that so many of us have in our work these days. If you can see the truth, which is that there is always going to be too much to do, that you are going to die with a long to-do list that you haven't completed, that, that you know, we are finite creatures facing an, an effectively infinite supply of things we could be doing and pressures we could be feeling and, and projects we could be launching and pe demands that could be made of us. Once you see that that is just totally non-negotiable and, and, and the reality, that's actually really relaxing because in that moment you can say, oh, I've been trying to do something that is like trying to make two plus two add up to five, right? It's just out of the question. It's not that I'm not good enough. It's not that I haven't figured out a way to put even more self-discipline and energy and, and, uh, and sort of vigor into my work. It's just, that's an impossible goal. And, and it's in letting go of that impossible goal that you can sort of free up the energy and the time and the attention and the focus to pour your resources into a handful of things that, that really count. I think that's something I'm always at pains to emphasize about these ideas, you know, it's not like, don't bother trying, you might as well just sit around doing nothing. Sure, a little bit of sitting around doing nothing is useful and, 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 and healthy. But this is the realizing our finitude, realizing our limitations, stopping trying to do everything is like an essential precondition to actually doing a whole bunch of really cool stuff with your life instead of trying to do everything. And it's almost like it's it's at ends to modern day society. Modern day society, you know, it's all about you can have every, you can live your best life, you can achieve it all. But it's only when we do provide a boundary or a limit that it gives us this edge with which to create against. And that's the paradox of the irony of this whole thing. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And it's funny, I think a lot of this is a sort of timeless human thing. We've, ever since prehistoric times, on some level, people don't want to 
die, don't want to face the fact that they are limited, would like to find ways to make themselves feel like they're on track to becoming superhuman, you know, which is effectively the, the situation that we're in so often. We're not superhuman, but we feel like maybe soon we'll get there with enough techniques and energy and discipline. But it's become... Well, firstly, I think it got a it got a lot worse, sort of, from the industrial revolution onwards, because it, then clock time became something that we could use or try to use to achieve this goal. Right? It's like, well, okay, now we're thinking about time as a resource. You get a certain number of hours each day. It feels like it's on you to try to squeeze even more into those hours. And then I think you know, digital communication and all sorts of things just in the last few decades have have made it even more extreme. There's this notion that you have to find a way to do an impossible amount just in order to sort of keep your head above water or um you know be minimally acceptable as a human being or something well that's a disaster if you're setting it up for yourself that you've got that the minimum you've got to do is an impossible amount then like only disaster can follow from that uh, from that set of ideas and i really do think that's like because modern life in a sense i don't think is working for so many of us because there's so much you really as you said like we just there's an insurmountable of things to to be done to just exist and i think your approach there's something very human about it it's very much accepting our mortality and accepting that you know the most basic kind of almost like our insecurities it's really acknowledging them and going hey you know we're not all superman and superwoman and you know let's just accept that you know and learn how to be more be more rather than do more. I think that's at the kind of core of your philosophic philosophy, really. I, I think that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think that a lot of us have this kind of notion that we have to do a certain amount of stuff and a certain number of, we have to excel in a certain range of areas, not because it would be fun to excel in those areas or because it would be so great to spend a life becoming really good at, you know, a specific sport or a specific language or something, but that we have to do this just to sort of feel like we've earned our place on the planet. It's kind of a quite, it's got some sort of religious overtones to it, this idea that like we're going to somehow save our souls through our work output. And I think it's really useful to reflect on the notion that like in the ultimate, really sort of existential sense, you don't have to do anything at all. Now, there are lots of things that are going to have very bad consequences if you don't do them. You do have to feed your children. There are things that are going to have pretty bad consequences if you don't do them. You you do have to, you know, pay your mortgage. Um, and, you know, you can go up that scale to things that like, well, it doesn't actually matter too much if you disappoint uh, your parents as an adult, usually. You know, it doesn't matter too much if you get a reputation as a flake with some specific friend, you know. So actually, in the ultimate sense, don't have to do anything. <laughs> and then all sorts of the things that we tell ourselves it's really essential to do We've sort of built that up in our minds. We've we've hung our sense of self-worth on it. And you can just sort of step back from that a bit and say, like, well, clearly it's impossible for me to do all the things that I'm telling myself I have to do. So actually, you know, what about focusing on a handful of relationships? What about focusing on on a few of my talents? What about, you know, not worrying too much about disappointing certain people and things like that? It's 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 just a it's just to do with coming back down to reality and seeing where you where you really stand, I think. And it seems to me that so much of it spawns out of us living in the future. Because even the other day I was walking back home and we're currently renting our house and we're looking at building or maybe buying a house. And I remember I was just kind of thinking about 
ultimately, if all we have is the present moment, if I have somewhere to sleep tonight, well, if I go beyond the illusion of ownership, which doesn't actually exist, I don't own anything. Ultimately, if I have a place to sleep now, that's all I need. Like the rest is this societal construct. And it seems like so much of our angst comes from this constant fear of the future. Whereas if you look at some of these indigenous tribes who don't have language for the future or the past, they only have a present tense. And if I look at my children, when I spent time with my son, Ned, who's now just turned six, the bit that I enjoy so much is that we use the present tense. We don't use the future or the past. We took, look, there's a flower. Let's go smell the flower. Oh, dad, you kicked the ball. It's all the present tense. And it's so like relaxing. And when I spend time with him, I feel like at ease when it's just the two of us. Often he can press other buttons of me. But I wonder is a huge significant part of the angst that modern day society creates is down to the fact that we're living so much of it in the future. Or in our imagined future. Or desired future. Yeah, no, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? In theory, as long as everything is fine right now, then everything is fine. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, nothing is permanent. So, uh, you, you, you know, um, maybe a, it would be normal to feel anxious about where you're going to live in a few months' time. But then if you had a, if you bought a house, it would become much more normal to feel like you'd got it all sorted out and like it was all fixed now forever but of course nothing's fixed now forever because we are mortals and because we don't control the future so yeah i think that the the sort of the way into this that i always am fond of being a kind of vaguely pessimistic curmudgeonly sort of person instead of a instead of a cheery one is to say not that you should sort of be more present in the moment because it's so beautiful and wonderful although it is but really that you should be more present in the moment because like, what else are you going to do? It's like you, that it's true for all of us, even like, you know, president of the United States or Elon Musk, it's true for all of us at every moment that we cannot control the next, the next moment, you know, that anything could happen at any moment. We're in this position of sort of total vulnerability. We absolutely can't do all the things that we might want to do with our time. And so in a way it, you sort of fall back into like, well, okay, then might as well just be, here in the only moment that I can that I can be in and I'm kind of partial to that slightly sort of uh uh downbeat way of getting into these ideas because it isn't some sort of quest to become a perfect spiritual person who um has put aside all all thought of the future it's just seeing like oh this is pointless this thing I'm trying to do where I'm trying to feel like I'm confident and certain about what's going to happen for the next 10 years of my life like that is just like just give it up it's not it's not gonna work and that can actually be just as liberating especially for a certain kind of personality i think i think i really relate I, to it i really relate to it i love your take on things i really do i really do and i wonder like could you talk about because obviously you've come from you know as you say yourself like you know you are very into productivity tools and you know very much on that track and I wonder what have been things like, because to wean yourself off this, like we've all been programmed, you know, we're 42 and we've got 42 years of programming from culture and society that, you know, busyness is a commodity and how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. Oh, you must be so busy. Oh yeah, I'm really, really busy. Yeah, you know, and it's that kind of conversation. And I wonder what are things like, how have you reprogrammed yourself? Because there is an element of re finding a, an update to your software. And you you also hit inbox zero at one point, I remember hearing you say, and I thought that was hilarious you talking about that 
And and I guess the illusion of hitting inbox zero is that you think there's going to be a brass band come through the house and the firework display and, you know, whoa, congratulations. And the president will come in and shake your hand. Yeah. Or just even more simply that once you've got to inbox zero, you've reached some place instead of like tomorrow, there's another 20 emails in the inbox and you've got to do it all over again. I mean, yeah, I mean, I have, I think an important thing to say about this sort of approach to life for me is that it is very sort of forgiving of our imperfections and our limits and our flaws. And therefore, you know, I try to be forgiving about the fact that I'm not a perfect example of it. And I'm still totally capable of getting kind of stressed by having too much work or um, certainly partial to new apps that people tell me are going to transform my, my productivity. But I think it just comes down to this I mean, we can talk in really specific, like if you want to talk about techniques and things like that, I'm very happy to. But I think it's just this idea that like so many of us, and maybe this is a kind of 40s thing in some ways, right? Because the, the older that you you get to a sort of middle bit of life and this notion that soon your real fully efficient and optimized life is going to begin becomes harder to sustain, right? When you're 20, you can be like, yeah, maybe life hasn't started properly in a certain way. But then after a while, you're like, no, this is life, this here right now, right? This is my circumstance. This is my family. This is my environment. And there's this sort of realization, uh, I think that comes to a lot of people, came to me that like, there isn't going to be a total fresh start in the way that we're often bewitched by, right? There isn't going to be this moment of truth a few years from now, a few months from now, when then it's all in, you're all in control of it all and real life can begin. No, this is real life now with all its sort of, imperfections and that's kind of a bit deflating at first to realize because you have to sort of let go of certain kinds of fantasy but on the other side of that feeling of deflation is a much greater like commitment to being here and being alive and enjoying what you what you actually have and it's actually a better way to sort of launch exciting projects and make changes in your life right in a sense you have to sort of be okay with not changing in order to get going on on making changes that another of these paradoxes that we keep running into there's a certain there's a certain humility and like groundedness like there really is it's a beautiful kind of you know accepting that we are flawed insecure humans and that let's go forward with that perspective rather than I'm going to wear the mask of a superhuman and I'm going to pretend I'm the most productive person ever and everything is awesome. And, you know, it's almost like it's it's really accepting that aspect of it. And I guess one, one thing which came to my mind, uh, uh, sorry, was there your dating advice, which I think is so such a good representation of what you're talking about because we've all watched so much Hollywood movies, you know, and we're all looking for the one and, oh my God, when's this perfect human going to walk into my sitting room and just blow, you know, the, the world is going to be set alight. And yeah, I wonder if you could tell us your piece of world-class dating advice. Right. It's, it's a couple of paragraphs. I don't really feel confident giving much more dating advice than this, but I mean, yeah, I think that dating is a really obvious place, especially in how it works uh, these days, though I've, fingers crossed, I've skipped most of the worst examples of online, what online dating does to uh, people's, um, uh, to people's romantic lives. But there is this, this constant sense that, um, you know, you want to try and find the right person and, and you think what you're doing is comparing people, or you think what you're doing is comparing a given person that you're dating to some theoretical other people. What you're actually doing is comparing real a real person 
to this world of fantasy where no limits apply, right? So one of the points I make in the book is that people tend, lots of people tend to want sort of a limitless amount of excitement and a limitless amount of security from a long-term relationship when they're sort of getting into it. And there's good reason to believe that these are just sort of at odds with each other, that um, if you really value security, you might have to settle for a bit less excitement. If you really value endless excitement, you might have to be in a situation that's less secure. And the argument that I make basically is that like we talk about not wanting to settle. We talk about not wanting to um, settle for, which usually means right, settling for a partner who is um, who, when we think we could do better or something. And what some people will do for a long time in that situation is sort of, you know, be an endlessly sort of commitment phobic and never quite commit to any relationship. And all I want to make the argument in the book is that both of these are settling, right? One of them is settling for an imperfect, flawed human being. And one of them is settling for uh, denying yourself the benefits and the pleasures of a long-term relationship for the amount of time that you spend being commitment phobic. It's not that either of those might be the right answer for anybody at any time. It's just that this notion that there is a, a way of spending our time that isn't sacrificing other things. That's the thing I really want to, to, to refute, right? The decision to commit to one person is the decision to miss out on things that for all you know, could have been better. Who knows? You could never know. But the decision to be commitment phobic and never quite commit for 10 years of your life is, to, is a decision to sacrifice what could have been 10 years of a long-term relationship, right? So there's upside and downside all the way through. This doesn't just apply to dating. Obviously, any decision to do anything with an hour of your time or a month of your time is a decision not to do a whole lot of other things. And it's great to realize this because then you stop making decisions motivated by this notion of some totally perfect outcome that we'll, you'll never get to. And you get to make real decisions about like, okay, is this person someone I want to be with? Is this job opportunity something I want to pursue? Not as compared to something that could never exist in the world, but compared to the other choices that are available. It's so wonderfully sobering and pragmatic. Like when I hear you talk about it, it's really like, this is real wisdom, but yet it's so hard for many of us to apply because it's removing beyond that. I don't know if you ever saw the Lego movie where everything is awesome, everything is awesome. It's like removing back that veil of the myth Fantasy. that we're being sold, that you can have it all. Whereas it's much more like, no, if you'd sooner prefer time with this person and this person, well, why don't you just choose this person rather than waiting for someone else? Like it's so I think practical. it is. I mean, yeah, it is a question of sort of, it is difficult because it is a question of sort of, dropping certain kinds of comfortable illusion but it is really liberating as well i mean i you try i use all these kind of metaphors in the book trying to convey what i'm talking about and one of them borrowed from someone else is to describe this kind of um this kind of thing uh, this kind of realization this this way of thinking as as equivalent to like a cold shower right it's like there's something about taking a cold shower at least for people who are not sort of deeply trained in the ways of Wim Hof and uh, ice baths and everything. There's something about it that's really uncomfortable. But there's something about it that's absolutely fantastic, that's invigorating, that makes you feel like you're seeing the world more clearly, thinking more clearly, um, and that you're in touch with your senses and with reality in a, in a, in a more authentic way. And I, th I, I kind of like that, um, that analogy here. It's a bit of a bucket of cold water to the head 
but um but but that's bracing not just depressing right we swim in the sea every day in the cold irish sea so i think great great metaphor in a way so much of what you're saying you're taking the lens of productivity and applying so many of these much needed spiritual principles in so many ways like when i hear you talk i don't know if you ever watched that movie about time one of my favorite romantic movies i'm a sucker for romantic movies and at the end at the end there's this lovely kind of where he just kind of recaps and i'm, I'm sorry if i'm giving away a lot of the plot to anyone and he talks about the importance of life being about those magic little moments once you kind of almost celebrate the imperfections of life that that's where the wonder of life when you understand the duality that life isn't just sunny days there's also beauty in the rain and the storm and the wind and the crap and the hardship and the difficulty. And I think the more we can lean into this, that there's something in the discomfort because so many of us, like, although we're as humans, we're innately designed to seek comfort and avoid discomfort. Often, if we can accept the discomfort and accept that this is just a different sensation, often that this can lead through it as you you use the example of creative waiting when there's a problem that appears instead of sitting with it and stabbing around trying to get a solution straight away just sit with it and allow something to unfold yeah i i mean something i really noticed in my in myself that made a big difference to sort of the all this thinking and the writing of the book is how frequently the discomfort or the feared discomfort that will put me off doing something that I care about, like how little that needs to be. It, it, it's like we're set up to have this reaction almost subconsciously that if we think some project is going to cause us mild discomfort or waiting for something is going to be mildly annoying or it's going to be a little bit difficult to try to, you know, in my case, like write a chapter or something like that, that's easily enough for like me to spend the next week just like avoiding it or or longer, sometimes much longer, um, as if that was the kind of discomfort that would kill me. And, you know, definitely there are experiences that people have in life that are absolutely appalling and deeply painful, no question. But an awful lot of our sort of day-to-day -day aversions are to a kind of discomfort that is just um, like... It's just so small. I, in the early part of the COVID pandemic, I was living in New York City, and the rules there were that you could you could do what you liked as long as you were outdoors. Really, that was that was basically the rule. And as winter set in during 2020, lots and lots of people started saying, "Well, this is terrible now because it's going to be really cold outside, so we can't go and hang out with our friends, and then we'll just have to stay inside, and there'll be no socializing." And I ended up writing this piece because uh, it made me so cross. It's like, no. You can socialize with your friends in the freezing cold, right? Like, I mean, almost everybody can do that. There may be some people with medical conditions, or maybe if it's very slippy or something, but 99% of the time, that discomfort, like, oh, it's cold. I mean, I guess I'm coming back to the cold shower example. And you sounds like you know what I'm what I'm talking about here. But like, we will be dissuaded from doing things that add great value to our lives in order to avoid a level of discomfort that we know, even when we're thinking about it we could easily be fine with and that we'd be feel so rewarded at the end of for having for having dealt with well i think this comes exactly down to meaning versus happiness because i think you've got happiness which most of us associate to kind of 
ex you know it's it's excitement and it's jubilance and it's laughing and joyful and then there's meaning like the same meaning of being a parent which is changing nappies and getting up in the middle of the night and there's meaning you don't enjoy every step of it there's a lot of real hardship but there's so much meaning in it and I think this comes back to you have two wonderful concepts in the book and in your philosophy really which is which the juxtaposition you've got Jordan Peterson's takes on happiness which is all about responsibility gives us meaning and gives us happiness and that's why as an adult or a, or a parent you know you've got responsibility you've got duty it gives meaning and purpose to your life and then on the other polar opposite you give the example of a digital nomad which is the ultimate freedom people kind of are just we're looking for freedom and I think there's these two polar opposites and I'd love to hear your take on those two yeah it's a great great example I mean I, I, I always feel obliged to say I'm not condemning anybody watching or listening to this who is a digital nomad I think there are I I've certainly had sort of phases of my life not where I was doing that explicitly sort of running a business from a laptop on a beach or something but certainly sort of more rootless phases and perhaps it's 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 right to to it's important to have those experiences but basically this dream that we can achieve total control over our time or that the ideal way of living would be that you got to decide from moment to moment exactly what you wanted to do and where you wanted to do it as against as you say the experience of being a parent of small kids my son is just about to turn six as well so i'm i know what uh, you're talking about here um you know it's just especially in those very earliest uh, months and years it's just there's just a non-negotiability to it it's just like well it's time for the nappy to be changed it's time for feeding you know it's time for responding to a cry it's not there's no control over those moments and there is uh this applies obviously to lots of situations for people who aren't parents as well Lo there is lots of meaning in that sort of taking responsibility for that situation that you don't have uh control over that you don't get to dictate whereas there is this kind of emptiness and disconnection that comes from always making all the choices yourself in a very obvious sense you know loneliness is a big problem for digital nomads because you can't sort of coordinate properly uh with other friends because they're all sort of pinging around the planet at the same time and i think really that idea of responsibility and taking responsibility i don't love every word that jordan peterson has ever said but like i do think that that notion of it's it's sort of the act of fully entering life isn't it to be like this is what's in front of me and I commit to doing what needs to be done about this thing in front of me. It isn't, doesn't need to be a kind of um, terribly dutiful and sort of depressing thing. It is actually like it's really showing up for this moment of time in this place right here. And if you don't do that, you end up in this situation where you're sort of holding back, again, probably because you think one day you're going to really enter into things, but not quite yet and i don't know as i say all of this is personal therapy on one level and a sort of the result of realizing that i myself had been holding back in in kind of very subtle ways often from fully participating in experience and how much better it is to to step into the arena as marcus aurelius says yeah i think that's ultimately it. Yeah. can i knew a thing can... or two that guy oh, yeah. a bit of a legend uh, quite stoic though quite stoic um what one um one thing that like kind of re not realization but one thing that comes to me is like modern day society we 
at least in the English speaking world, we tend to really have a huge emphasis on rational, on logic, on measuring, on science. And recently we've started back learning Irish, the Irish language. And English is about 800 years old and Irish is about 3000 years old. And Irish is a language that is intertwined with the landscape. It's a language that's much more mystical, that all joy is kind of referenced to nature. And the Irish language naturally, like it comes from a time when it wasn't quite so rational, logical or science focused. It's much more mystical. Like, you know, there could be kind of so many stories about the the Murphy's down there. They knew how to talk to the leprechauns and the Smiths down there. They knew where the mermaids lived. And there was there was a lot more like different almost realities that existed beyond this measurable one that we live in now. And I wonder, like how you can relate to that kind of paradigm of time and the fact that we look at things so logically rational productivity so measured as opposed to the other one is much more the lens of marveling the lens of kind of really a reverence for life almost like a reverence for it and i i I know there's no one definite question what i'm saying here but it's more there's this sentiment within the words that i'm trying to communicate i'm not sure if i'm getting them across well let me try let me tell you what it makes me think of and you can tell me if it's if i'm saying something relevant i mean i think that one of the you know in a in in the modern era you hear someone saying what you're talking about and and you have the sense that someone who thinks that someone is in touch with the mermaids or or any other kind of you know fairy element of life you think that person is sort of coming is is sort of drifting away from reality into uh, imaginary things and the person who's being very scientific and rational is, is is in touch with reality, is is looking at how things really are. I think when you consider time, one of the most interesting things is that, to me, is that the way we relate to time um, today primarily and have done since certainly before the Industrial Revolution, but industrialization was a big driver of it, um, it's actually incredibly abstract and conceptual and separated from the day-to-day embodied reality. It's this notion that there is this thing called time, which is separate from us. Um, People imagine it as running along a timeline, or maybe they're imagining a clock or a calendar or something, but there's this kind of, there's this thing that isn't you called time, and you have to like fit things into time, or you have to use that time well, or maybe you feel like it's nipping at your heels. You know, we have some relationship with this weird abstract thing called time. And in those um, spiritual traditions and times in history and certain communities, even today, I think where people that we tend to think of as being somehow mystical, one way of seeing what they're doing is actually just being much more present to the the, the reality of um, of where they are and what is happening and how things are unfolding and not being governed by this kind of mental clock that that then causes us all these problems because we feel like we have to like fight to dominate it and take control of it. So, you know, those sort of spiritual experiences of the, of time falling away, in a sense, they are not about um, leaving reality for a mystical plane. They are about coming back into reality in the fullest way. And I think that, I mean, I'm not a huge expert on uh, Irish and, Celtic spirituality and all the rest of that. But I do know that it is a kind of a, it is a very sort of earth focused and embodied kind of uh, 
tradition and it is to do with you know the rocks and the plants and the waves and the and and, and all the rest of it and i think that that is speaks to this notion that um you know it's kind of almost more hard-headed and realistic to to let go of that abstract notion of of clock time at least sometimes now we do need it you know can't have modern technology modern economies modern healthcare without these um ways of coordinating the time of lots and lots of people but it's really useful to remember that it's not the only way to see things and certainly wasn't the way that most people saw them in the middle ages say yeah because it's almost like i think where my question was coming from was like how i think as a society we it might benefit i'm being quite um subject or gentle here with it it might benefit by putting less emphasis on our minds and our logic and reason and actually embodying kind of wisdom more like the more we do we run a good health revolution course with a consultant gastroenterologist so a gut doctor and he'll often say the same amount of nerve endings in your gut as there is in your brain and that yeah. our gut is like our second brain and the more kind of science digs deeper into and understands more about the microbiome they understand like that we're actually more host than we are human that we've more dna of microorganisms that aren't human than we do human cells and it makes me kind of realize i wonder are there other you know like are we putting too much emphasis on our mind and logic and ration and reason and as you said time outside of ourselves as opposed to actually experiencing life in a more embodied manner as you kind of described there more eloquently than me no yeah I, th I mean i think you're absolutely right and i think you know uh the one way of talking about this as well another way of talking about it is the sort of left brain right brain thing controversial but that sort of idea that and i'm definitely someone you know going back through my biography who is has tendencies towards being sort of brain on a stick you know to thinking that ultimately cognition and cognitive work can get a handle on 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 everything that that you're that it's possible and necessary to sort of understand intellectually uh, everything that's happening. And then it's going to be through the intellect that you come up with the plans to do the things to become the person or to make the things happen that you need to happen. And, you know, I, I don't think the intellect has no role. I'm not suggesting I, I, that's not my stance at all. And in fact, a lot of this book is a sort of a, arguably it's a sort of intellectual person's attempt to, cut the um i don't know you know to cut the intellect off at the knees in a way but it's a sort of there's some sort of i don't know jujitsu or something going on but um yeah i just think there's a very there's a very interesting tradition in sort of zen buddhism for example of saying that like the world is not fully conceivable you're never going to get there through uh through just the use of the intellect that's going to take you out of life if you pursue it to the exclusion of everything else um and that yeah we do need to sort of fall back into the full reality of things philosophy in the west especially doesn't have a very good history of this right because it is in itself sort of an attempt to use the mind to uh get a handle on absolutely everything else um and that doesn't always have the best effects yeah, yeah totally well. okay there's there's loads more things i want to jump in and really i guess we we definitely do need to talk about work-life balance because i did mention that in the intro and your views on that but but i i said at the start and i really do think so much of what we're discussing about is the contrast between like we are called human beings yet we have become human doings and it's this kind of struggle back to like your your book really is almost like a journey 
you know, as a human doing our journey back to how can we become bridge that gap between being a bit more human being rather than human doing and how can we justify it? It's almost like we need to justify that we can be like, because, you know, as you said, most of us have low grades of anxiety where it's, you know, our, our leisure time is very often used to kind of renew ourselves so that we can become better workers or we've got a side hustle in our leisure time that it's kind of, it's all kind of very focused. So, um, yeah, I guess work-life balance was, was what I was going and then I went off on a rant. Uh, no, no, it's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit facetious about work-life balance. I basically claim that no one, no one has ever uh, experienced it in the history of the world ever. I think the main problem with, well, there are lots of issues with that idea, as other people have noted, right? It's very strange to think of work and life as being uh, distinct things. It's very, it feels like giving up before you started to say that work can never be really a full part of life or something, or that you're always, that, you know, the relationships and the recreation of your time outside work is always going to be in competition with your work. I mean, maybe that has to be the case for some people, but maybe it doesn't have to be the case, at least for some, for some of us. And then secondly, you know, it's one of these ideas that, that sneaks in this notion. It talks about balance as if, um, as if it's about, uh, sort of accepting the limitations of your ability to work and to be uh, sort of a, a full, you know, it suggests that it's about balancing different things in a, in, a, in a judicious way. I think how it comes down to us in the culture usually is about, and it's a, actually a sort of high pressure idea about somehow finding a way to be 100% uh, as, a, as a working person and 100% as a family member and a friend and all these other things. So, you know, it's actually an anti- uh, it's a sort of an unrealistic uh, pressure. Whereas to say, for example, that there might be phases of your life when imbalance in one direction or the other was the was the healthy way to be, I think is a lot more realistic. You know, maybe at the beginnings of your career in your 20s or something, you are going to, you know, work incredibly long hours if that's something you're passionate about. Hopefully it's not going to be something that you feel you're obliged to do just to keep your head above water. But, you know, I don't want to condemn someone who dedicates themselves at that stage of life, say, wholeheartedly to their work. And I certainly, based on personal experience, don't want to condemn someone who gets away with the very least they can get away with at work for a year or two when they have a newborn baby in the house, because that feels to me like that's as it should be. So there's interesting policy questions here about, you know, how, how society should help people in these ways. But this notion that we've got to find at any given moment in our lives, we're going to ideally feel like work and things that aren't work uh, or aren't paid work are going to be in some sort of perfect balance. It's just an unnecessary extra pressure, I, I think. Yeah, I totally agree with it. I know that's something that we've often said. I think it was Buddha. No, maybe it was Gandhi or one of these old sages or wisdom gurus in my head said the more we can move from work and life being these separate things, we're more we're moving into alignment or we're more moving into wholeness. And I guess that was always uh, back when we started, we started uh, like with a veg shop 18 years ago. And we were, we were about, total, we were 24 years old and we were total idealists. And we consciously, instead of using the work, we used to call it play. We used to say we're going to play shop. And it was really just this idea that work had always been seen as toil. You were toiling and struggle. That was the association of work. You were selling your time for a wage. Whereas in our head, we were always out to try to kind of redefine it for ourselves, where it was really about purpose and meaning. And certainly for our own children now, we'll certainly, 
we find work and life just as a blur. Like we, we're like farmers where, where it's just, it's all life and work is as much, I get so much like that word fulfillment. People are going, well, where do you get fulfillment? And I'd say I get lots of it from work because I find it takes the full of me to, you know, I, I feel I have to bring the full of me to work to try to, you know, to, 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 to create, to be part of this creative process that's unfolding. So I think. Yeah, no, that's so, yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think, you know, there's this, it's funny the words we use, right? Because obviously work has come to just mean paid employment really as a, as a first major meaning, but there's this tradition in psychotherapy and maybe it's spirituality, you know, of talking about like the work of your life or the great work of your life sometimes is the phrase that you, that you see. And I think we all have that. It's just that for some of us, it's going to be the thing that we do to earn a living. And for some of us, it, it isn't. And, uh, you know, in an ideal society, you wouldn't be penalized for the fact that uh, that what you were good at and what you were contributing was was not something that was necessarily you know well remunerated by the market but but like there's no need to think of work as just drudgery and there's no need to think of what we do outside of work as as not constructive right i mean that there may be as i say you know people are in different situations and and um i'm very fortunate in how work works in my life. It sounds like you are too, but like, let's at least not ruin it from the outset by adopting a principle that says, you know, work is always going to suck. It's always going to be something you need to minimize because life happens outside of it. And life is always going to be the thing that people really want to be spending their time on. That just seems like uh, an unhelpful way to start. Well, that, that, that naturally leads on to leisure time because because we need to talk about this because like you've got a wonderful perspective in your in your philosophy because I, I call it philosophy more than your book because the book is obviously it's your bible of the philosophy but I really think your approach in terms of um, leisure time because leisure time nowadays is like you talk about in certain religions where you know they, they get holidays at the same time or, or or I think back to Ireland when we were growing up back 30 years ago like nothing opened on a Sunday Sunday was like we used to hate Sundays because there was nothing happening there was no shops there was nothing happened you went to church you had to go to mass that was all that happened on a Sunday and it was a day off and everyone kind of did stuff together and it was a day of rest whereas nowadays you know Sunday is just another day it's another day to keep going and it's to keep you know being a cog within the machine to some degree and um, I guess, you know, Aristotle and some of the great, great philosophers, they talk about, they talk about, you know, a life being worth lived is one where you can reflect upon it. You know, and even there's a quote down in Greystones in the park, which we live, said that it says, it says down in the park in Greystones, it says, no life is worth living without having the time to reflect upon it. You know, and I really think to have time to contemplate and you know, to have leisure time, which the the sole purpose of it is to just enjoy it or waste it. You know, we use the word to waste time, but literally some of the most enjoyable times of my life has been sitting, listening to musician, sipping a cup of coffee at the side of a street and you're going, and this is wasted time, you know, because I'm not being a productive unit of labor, but it is, it is the most beautiful thing. And it's like the John Lennon quote that says that, um, you know, time happens when you're not planning things. And and I just, I'd love to hear you talk about leisure time and your perspective on it right now. It's really interesting because, yeah, it is this kind of, yeah, you go back to Aristotle, you go back to sort of ancient thought and leisure is the pinnacle. It's like, that's the, 
you know, ancient philosophers do have a tendency to define doing philosophy as the highest thing that anyone can can possibly aspire to, which is a bit of a sort of a occupational hazard, I guess, of being a philosopher. But they, <laughs> but they, but but the idea that you know the time that you spend not working for some future purpose is the most real and the most valuable time. That's the thing that I think we've sort of radically lost. Obviously, in the most extreme version is this notion that the only reason to uh you know go for a run the only reason to sleep is so that you can be a better worker and that in obviously is a kind of really sort of depressing pinnacle of it but in fact anything any outlook that says um there's a problem rather with any outlook that says the most important time is the stuff you is the time you use for a future out, outcome and the, the time that you're not working to a future outcome is just sort of dead time. It's just sort of waiting around, take, having a rest so you can get back to that. Um, because, you know, obviously many future outcomes are very important and good, and they're not this sort of like drudgery of earning a wage in a job you hate or something. All sorts of everything that's ever been achieved by humanity has been achieved in a, by sort of trying to use time for some future outcome. But if you completely invest in that, um, yeah, it leads to the situation where the value of time is always in the future. There's never any meaning in life now because you're always accomplishing a goal or failing to accomplish a goal while you take a rest. Um, and, and so in, you get to this very strange, again, paradoxical situation where actually what we call wasting time in our society, which is doing things that have no future benefit, um, is in some ways the own, wasting that time in that sense is in some ways the only way to not waste time, right? Because it's the it's the only way to totally fully be here for this experience now. And so I talk in the book about hobbies and how you know how important I think it is uh, for people to to like have a hobby um, and how strangely embarrassing it's become to sort of talk about the idea of of having of having a hobby, which is just something you do for the pleasure of doing it, um, as opposed to phrase you've already mentioned in this conversation a side hustle which is kind of cool and exciting and um fashionable and that's because it's a hobby that you've taken and turned into something that has an instrumental purpose you're trying to get somewhere with it you're trying to derive an income from it and that's fine not against that at all but i think like we shouldn't forget that at some point all our actions have to sort of cash out in um to use an inappropriately kind of financial metaphor but they have to sort of cash out in a present moment at some point otherwise like what's the point of doing any of it at some point the value of life has to be now instead of just always postponed over the horizon into the future brilliant brilliant i love no, it i, I love I'm, it and I, i'm I think, all for that I yes think, please i think now we have to kind of break down into tools okay so so certainly i'm with you i'm totally with you i agree with redefining our relationship to time and kind of you know looking at things differently and i'd love to get into a bit of tools and because you've been on this journey for longer than many people and you've been contemplating this for quite a while and what are tools that have helped you to be more and do less and accept your mortality and you know accept that you're not going to get everything do like is meditation is mindfulness accepted is, a limited life is getting a pet is taking up wood whittling you know is you know what are your do favorite you have hobbies Sort of, yeah. I'm not great at this. One of the hardest things I find is to sort of stop and just do something for the sake of it. But like, um, it's very good now living in the North York Moors, which we have 
only done for a year or so, being so surrounded by um, beautiful countryside and hiking countryside makes it kind of, it's almost embarrassing to go a few too many days without having a, going on a good hike because like, what the heck are you doing here if you're, if you're not going to go hiking? So I've using the sort of pressure of my environment to cause me to do that, which I have always loved, but found reasons to not get around to uh, perpetually. So there is that. Um, I think, you know, the, the thing about tools, certainly in the most sort of narrow sense about sort of productivity techniques and ways to organize your day and things like that, um, Obviously, what I'm talking about here is not fundamentally about the tools. It's about the shift in perspective. Um, but I do think that a lot of time management and productivity advice is kind of perfectly fine as long as you're coming to it in this attitude of, you know, not attempting to use it to become superhuman or to do everything. So, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of... Um, the idea of limiting your work in progress, which is a which is a sort of a general a general way of talking about um, ways of managing your work, assuming you have some autonomy, you know, about what you work on when in the course of the day or the week, managing it such that you're only ever really addressing yourself to say two or three things before and completing them before moving on to the other ones, and learning to let the other things wait even though they feel urgent rather than you know desperately trying to make progress on all of them so one thing that i mentioned in the book just as a very very um down-to-earth way of uh implementing this if someone is interested is use two to-do lists right have one to-do list that is uh limitless that you just put down every single thing that's on your plate maybe it's got 300 items on it crazy long list um and use another list which I call a closed list that has a fixed number of slots on it, maybe five slots on it is a, is a good number, I think. Could be 10, whatever. And the rule is that you feed tasks from your crazily long list onto this short list uh, until you've filled the slots. And you're not allowed to put any more onto that list until you've freed up a slot by by doing one of those things. So it's like a bottleneck that you deliberately create in your own life. Um, that uh, causes you to actually, you know, pay attention to a few things, give them the time they need, see them to completion, and then move to the next ones. And what's hardest about this for most people these days is that feeling of like, no, I can't afford to let all those other things just sit and wait and, and line up outside the door while I work on these things. I can't, I can't afford it. They're just, they're all too urgent. Um, and to which my response is like, well, they may all be too urgent, but the fact is that like the only way to get through them and the only way to do them is to give some of them your focus and to um, like learn to tolerate the anxiety, basically, of letting the other ones wait. Otherwise, you'll just do insignificant amounts on 50 things and make no progress on anything and be worse off than when you started. So that as a way of working is something that has meant a lot to me having the guts in a way developing the guts to to not move forward on almost all my projects and priorities at any one moment so that i can just like nurture the two or three that i've decided to nurture right now and then move on to some other ones later you get through more stuff that way too so actually it should please the person who is obsessed with productivity but it's very counterintuitive um, and then, yeah, I mean, you mentioned meditation. I'm not a hugely diligent meditator. I'm a fairly diligent writer of morning pages. So I get up in the morning and fill three sides of a journal with kind of free writing. 
Um, all of these different practices just have, I don't know, various different benefits. One of them is just, um, just sort of obliging you to be right there where you are uh, instead of, you know, the, the idea of morning pages is not, well, if I can't think of anything good to write, I stop and get on with something more constructive. No, the idea is it's a practice. You just do the thing. You sort of uh, put aside your judgment of whether it's a good use of time or not. I, did, I certainly did mine this morning at 6 a.m. And I did my three pages of absolute brain dump, absolute drivel. It was wonderfully cathartic. I love it. I wonder, um, Oliver, like say that this underlying anxiety that you kind of mentioned there, I, I wonder, does that come from a lack of enoughness? Modern day society kind of almost feeds into human greed and our insecurity and this kind of really insidious kind of like very few of us feel enough that we always want more that really fuels our greed. I wonder where do you think this underlying anxiety or this kind of almost like this pulse it's almost like an insecurity yeah it's where like do you where do you like obviously this is a, a vast question but do you have any insight into where this the root of this anxiety is it a lack of enoughness is it our greed is it just like almost modern day um multimedia channels are kind of ca really capitalizing on our greed and our insecurities yeah i mean my model of where all this comes from it's you know who knows ultimately, but my sort of working hypothesis is these are timeless universal traits that come from being conscious beings in a, in a material body, right? The fact that we, the fact that we can think about the fact that we're going to die, the fact that we can think about the fact that our time is limited. So we're sort of animals, but we have this capacity to connect to the infinite in, in through our minds and then you know there's a mismatch there because you can't actually do an infinite amount you can't actually live forever and then i think yes all sorts of forces in modernity take this this situation and make it worse so i think that there may maybe many benefits to the decline of religion but i think one of the downsides of that is that religion tends to provide people with uh a, a ready-made explanation as it were a ready-made way of, of of understanding themselves to be part of something infinite it's not all on them uh they don't have to prove that they're enough certainly in sort of um many traditions of uh, sort of judeo-christian religions right you don't have to prove that you're enough because because once you've given yourself to god you're okay even if you are flawed even if you are limited then you have technological reasons that sort of that allow us to believe that we could actually become do an infinite amount, right? That's the, that's the problem. In some ways, there's something beneficial to, um, to never being able to believe in the first place that you could answer a thousand messages in a day, which, you know, prior to email, nobody would ever, nobody would ever think that that ought to be feasible. There's something about the speed at which technology allows us to operate now that makes you think you ought to be able to get it finally close the gap, you know, between yourself as a limited human and infinite warp speed. Um, it, it's much, uh, it's much harder in a sort of pre-industrial setting, say, to believe that you could ever get to that place. Or, you know, you mentioned, uh, sort of the experience of, of sort of agriculture and farming, right? There's that you don't trick yourself. If you're a small scale farmer, in the medieval period, say, a few cows or a crop or two, right? You don't trick yourself that you're ever going to get through the process of, you know, rearing dairy cattle or 
uh, or har harvesting crops because that's just going to go on for centuries after you're dead, right? It's just a kind of you're playing your role in the middle of a of a very long theoretically, you know, effectively sort of infinite cycle. Whereas we have this notion that like maybe within my life I could finally, you know, uh, reach a state of completion with respect to, you know, getting on top of all the digital information that I'm supposed to deal with in my job. Or I could maybe be perfect at certain kinds of symbolic communication that 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 we do now with our computers and our laptops and the internet. And and so we're sort of led to believe that maybe we could almost get fast enough and 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 sort of efficient enough to uh, achieve escape velocity from our situation as finite humans. And that's a pity because we still can't, but we're sort of encouraged to believe that we might get there. So yeah, I didn't really talk very much about the feeling of enoughness, but it is totally related, right? Because it is this, it is this tendency of always, of always defining enough as the place you haven't got to yet. Yeah, and place yeah. that is achievable, it, like but it, it's never achievable. It really is a deeply like, and the more I've dug into your work over the last week, I've realised it just keeps coming back to time again. Like spirituality and the ancient old philosophical truths of kind of going. Ultimately, it's a modern day twist on like currently our time, our relationship with time, but it's really our relationship with the present moment, and that most of us, our relationship with the present moment is not as good as it could be potentially. Yeah. I think uh, and and it's there's a societal you know pr deeper programming within it so yeah. one last final one before um we open up a couple of questions oliver i wonder um time a time we tend to live in a world where time is linear as you said and we're separate from it and it's kind of moving on this kind of continuum in my limited experience when i am deeply deeply present and lost in a moment time can feel deep and i just wonder is there any can you relate to that in any way or is this just a crazy idea that myself and my five-year-old um, tend to believe and get lost in a moment? I think there's so many people, accounts of people trying to articulate that and I think I have experienced it too. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it is the feeling of being no longer, there's a sort of an alienation, right, that goes on with having the idea that there's time and that there's you and you have to use your time well, you know, there's a separation. And I think that, I think, not inside your mind, of course, but I think that what you're calling depth there is really that, in some ways, that sense of being integrated with where you are in a profound way, rather than sort of being on schedule or off schedule or being getting your way, making your way through a list with your focus on the moment when you get to the end of it. You know, it's just that sense of like, it's sort of outside that kind of time. Yeah, removed almost from the time-space continuum where it almost like, instead of time being this measured, quantified thing that kind of, you can, you need to use in a productive manner. You just are it. It's, as you said, fully integrated. You're just lost and it's like, whoa. Well, I think this is a really interesting way of thinking about it, this idea of being time. I mean, it gets it gets quite Zen Buddhist. It also is related to the work of Martin Heidegger, which let's not go there now at the end of this, <laughs> the end of this conversation. There's a jumping off a jumping off a very uh, into a very deep uh uh in very deep water. But but yeah, it's this idea that w w what does it do if you think about the idea that you are a portion of time instead of that you have a portion of time. I think for a lot of people that that tweaks something interesting in their, in their minds yeah cool oh, i'm gonna try that one today yeah, that's a nice one yeah i like that 
Uh, well, this has been wonderful, Oliver. I've really, really enjoyed this. Oh, you're brilliant. I love your work. And I love, like, you you, you bring a wonderful um, modern productivity lens focused on spiritual truths. And I love the fact that you don't approach it from this positively manifesting. You can have it all where it's like, no, we're limited. We're finite. We are practical, pragmatic human beings. There's a realistic twist to it, like absolutely. Because we, we do a lot of talks and we'll always say, well, you're going to die anyway. Like everyone's going to die and people go, oh, don't be so pessimistic. And it's like, no, like you're going to die. Like I can only be me. I, can only be me. I can't be that uh, endlessly positive manifesting person. That's just, that's just not who I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because manifesting has become really popular. Uh, however, I appreciate your take on it um, massively. Not to undermine it, but uh, yeah. Yeah. There's one question there, but I can't read it. I can read it on my own. Oh, can you read it? Oh, great. Oh, will you read it, Oliver? Great. Okay. All right. Do you think we as humans are now trying to be too many roles? A marriage, for example, both working and bringing up the children. Do you think this is efficient progression in humanity or inefficient? So, yeah, uh, too many roles. I think that's a, that's a really interesting way of, of getting into some of this um, material because, yeah, one of the things that's so interesting, if you look at the sort of rituals and routines of famous artists and authors and people who really seem to be very deeply creative back in history is like, it's just incredible. Like they, they just, everyone had servants, right? I mean, apart from the servants, obviously, and, uh, or, or sort of, um, you know, in many cases, like wives who, who seemed to be, uh, accepting or resigned to the idea that their only job was to support this, uh, creative endeavor. And it's like, that's not the world we live in anymore. And it's very important for the, for the freedom and autonomy of the people who fulfilled those roles, whether they liked them or not. But it does lead to this strange situation where it's just assumed that everyone can do everything and make all aspects of a life, um, fit together, uh, and you sort of, yeah, I think there are just like, there is a sense that there's just like too many, too many things going on. I don't think there are too many things going on. If you can understand that you're not going to be excelling in all of them at every moment of the, of the day. And there you get into sort of issues where there's all sorts of social and economic pressures and it's there's a whole sort of sexism aspect to it as well, right? All these pressures to be everything fall with different weight on different people, different categories of people. But I do think that there is a sort of universality in this notion that says like, no, you can't be all things to all people. Nobody can at any point, nobody's ever been able to. Um, and what this means to some extent is just sort of accepting that, that for this season of your life, you're gonna focus on this and this and this rather than this and this, you know? Um, and it's difficult, I struggle with it all the time you know but um but it is just the truth and in the end i think that you know nothing good can come of trying to persuade yourself that things are not the way that they are i don't know if that's begins to be an answer to that question but it was what it made me think of anyway i oh, love very it. good can i, I ask one final thing because there's no more questions coming very in. quick one i wonder can you just talk briefly on manifesting modern day Many generations really identify with manifesting and think it's like it's the secret to getting all your dreams. And I love your take on it. And I wonder if you could share your take on it. 
Well, t- tell me, give, uh, ask the question in a bit more detail because I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I've certainly been okay. very sarcastic okay. about like, the law, like of attra- law of attraction in the past, but tell me a bit more about yeah, your it's, thoughts. It's, yes, it's, it's that exactly. It's that exactly. This law of attraction that if you sit down and you focus on exactly what you want and you focus on it and your visualization board and you really, this is deeply and you feel the emotions of when you achieve it, everything is possible. And I just would love your cold water, your sobering um, cold water paradigm. Reality. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that these are these ideas in the modern literature are the distant successors of spiritual ideas that I don't want to just like rubbish, right? I think there's a there's a genealogy there uh, that uh, that deserves some respect. But where I have been disrespectful is in the idea that yes, by thinking really hard about material reality, you can influence material reality by that that the number one thing is to have an incredibly clear vision of where you want to go or what you want to achieve. There's some evidence, some research evidence. Uh, I think um, the psychologist Gabriel Ottingen has done some of this work that shows that like um, actually really, really strong visualization of the goals we want to achieve and the lives we want to live um, can actually sort of sap energy from 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 life itself, right? Because part of you sort of concludes that you've already achieved it. There's a very strange notion you get a lot in sort of new age self-help, which is that your brain can't tell the difference between vividly picturing an outcome and actually achieving that outcome. So therefore, that's why visualization works. Well, first of all, I don't think that's true at all. But secondly, if it was, that wouldn't be a good way to achieve an outcome. That would be a good way to not get around to achieving an outcome because you'd convinced yourself that uh, all the work had already been had already been done. So I find that a very, very mystifying uh, notion. And then, you know, there's this interesting work on affirmations that suggests that in certain contexts, not all affirmations, but certain contexts for sure, um, you know, telling yourself that you're much better than you feel you are because you've got low self-esteem is going to make you feel worse because you're going to generate all sorts of counter arguments that, you know, telling yourself you're a lovable person if you feel unlovable is probably not the way through that problem because then it just turns into this kind of internal argument with yourself, uh, which, uh, which doesn't usually lead anywhere good. So, yeah, I guess I'm just... And I think in general, you know, my suspicion about too much attachment to goals and endpoints and outcomes and visions and all the rest of it, not that it's all bad, but that it sets up this fundamental conflict between the reality you're actually in and the reality you think you ought to be in. Um, And then you end up defining everything that actually happens uh, that doesn't fall in with your plans as somehow a problem, somehow an interruption, somehow getting in the way of uh, the life you ought to be living. There's a lovely quote from C.S. Lewis about how actually, of course, the interruptions, things we call interruptions from our life, they are exactly our life. You know, they are exactly the things that we're being sent day by day to deal with. And uh, so I'm just sort of skeptical of the notion that, um, that, that, that any of that ultimately helps people to immerse themselves more fully in the in the in the actual reality of their lives but it's it's soberly refreshing it's soberly refreshing because it's you know what what i'm i'm hearing is it's really about reminding us of the journey you know like instead of the the destination it's always kind of focusing the destination whereas you know if you look at a kid making lego it ain't about finishing it it just gets lost in the the and and ultimately the one key that i take out reminder that i get out of everything you've said today is surrender surrender 
Yeah, I guess it's yeah. true. Yeah, and surrender as a precondition, as a as an empowering thing, right? Not yes. not to just give up and uh, accept your circumstances, but surrender to how things really are, so that you can then make the biggest difference or change your circumstances if you need to. Right? You've got to first of all acknowledge reality uh, in the fullest way that you can. Yeah. Do you have time for a final, final, no, I final? Think that's, uh, no, Oliver's. You're amazing. I absolutely enjoy talking with you immensely. I love your book, Four Thousand Weeks, and your column. You write a you write a newsletter, a biweekly newsletter, a bi-weekly newsletter which is really deep and philosophical and considered and just insightful. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, brilliant. And people can order your book wherever you know wherever books are sold. And yeah. yeah. Your website, did you ever get your website up and you were talking about it last time I listened to it, you were talking about updating your website? Uh, the, uh, the updating <laughs> takes a long time, but it's there. Uh, it's there at oliverberkman.com. You can find out about my books and sign up for my newsletter there if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Great. Brilliant. Well, well, thanks, thanks again, again Oliver. Oliver. Really, really appreciate it. You're wonderful. Really, really brilliant. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. I absolutely adored that conversation. What a legend. And I think we said it there at the intro that it was like, although there's this kind of almost like father-like figure in terms of the philosophy he applies, there's also something really feminine about accepting the patience, the gentleness, surrender. Like there's this wonderful balance between the masculine and the feminine and all what he comes, what he speaks. I thought ultimately it kind of reminded me of just the importance of the journey, of really enjoying the journey. And the whole of life is a journey. There's never any destination. We have these theoretical ideas of these milestones and we achieve this. Then we are going to be version 2.0 of ourselves, which I think is an absolute illusion. And it just reminded me of just every day is a journey. Just enjoy what we have. Enjoy and appreciate the wonderful magnificence as much as we can in each moment. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I wish you a wonderful present moment. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah. Wishing you a good present moment. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 See you. Bye. Bye. Bye.